The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for May 14th, 2021. Is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. We have a meeting of the minds. I love doing these episodes because it makes me feel like I don't do a one mic episode because I get to talk to two people I really like to talk to. Jen Briney, Andrew Heaton. We have a political trifecta episode for you. We are going to cover uh, a little a recap of one of uh, Briny's episodes uh, about the Texas power outage and what she learned from some of the hearings. We're going to get a preview of her episode digging into the COVID relief bill that Biden passed, the American Rescue Plan. Talk a little bit about our economic situation and whether or not our social safety net on any level is to blame for the soft job numbers in April. And, you know, just casually touch on some very light issues like guns, abortion, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, for laughs. It's a great conversation. I'm so glad that we got a chance to do it. One thing before we get into it, because quite possibly my favorite thing that has happened during this pandemic just happened. Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, has announced that in two weeks, four, five subsequent weeks after that, everybody in Ohio that has gotten at least one vaccination shot will be in the running for a million dollars. That's right. If you've gotten at least one vaccination shot, you are going to have five chances at a million dollars. Some back of the envelope math. 40% of Ohio is vaccinated. That means that as of now, although the hope is that the odds get worse because more people get vaccinated, Ohioans would have, if it happened right now, Ohioans would have roughly a four point a one in four point eight million or one to one to four point eight million chance in winning a million dollars. I love this idea. I love it. I love it. It's just so I mean, whatever. There's so much money that came in from the federal government. You're giving away five million dollars. Five million dollars gets spent in 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 state government in many, many, many dumb ways. I feel like this is big and loud. It it buys a tremendous amount of media coverage to discuss exactly how and where you can get a vaccine. So if you're literally just looking at, okay, if we were to spend five million dollars in advertising, what would we do with it? I, I feel like this gets you there. I feel like this is $5 million in advertising worth. I do. That's that. All right. Uh, 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 let's go ahead and get into our political trifecta. But first. Welcome, everybody, to the May edition of the political triad, the Troika. The three of us are back together. Jen Briney, Congressional Dish, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Andrew Heaton of the Political Orphanage. It's been two weeks, which means you're allowed back on the show. How are you? I, if I were two people, they'd both be happy. That's how great <laughs> I am. 
Uh, I wanted to, we were in our pre-show chatter. I was saying, you know, my stuff, whatever. Heat and stuff, blah, for the last month. But Bryony, you've really carried the mail here for, for the three of us. Uh, you did a great episode, in my opinion, on the Texas winter storms. And this is the curse of your program because it takes a couple months to actually process what happens and so you do these episodes a few months after they were the biggest news story on the planet. And so only X amount of people with patience longer than gerbils uh, uh, consume it. But I would very highly encourage everybody to uh, download the Congressional Dish episode about the Texas power failure, because I thought it was exceptional. Uh, 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 what even guided you to do it? And what were your top line conclusions after listening to all those hearings? Well, um, there's kind of an obsession in my house with weather things because I just love weather. I'm fascinated by everything about it. When, when I was six years old, they said, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a meteorologist, like that's a normal kid. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) when I found out there was a giant snowstorm, just wiping out the power grid in the middle of the country, I was interested in it. And then my husband is a utility scale solar engineer. So he is obviously interested in it too, because they had projects out there. And so um, I, every two weeks or so, go through the congressional record and I list all of the hearings in my notes that I would want to watch. And I saw that both the Senate and the House were doing hearings on what happened. And just having watched the story in the media, I just felt like it was really unclear. They were saying, you know, the pipes froze and it's because Texas had their own grid. And it's it was very unclear to me what happened. So I figured these hearings where they brought people from Texas, from the regulators to the people in charge of getting the power to people to the Houston mayor. Those are the type of type of people that were brought into Congress under oath. And I figured I'll get some real answers here. And I'm really glad I did that episode because I did get some answers that were different from what were in, you know, kind of, I absorbed through Twitter and through the limited corporate media that I um, consume. So I was really happy that I did the episode because I think the moral of the story, spoiler alert, is that it wasn't a case of Texas's grid being disconnected and therefore they couldn't bring in more power. It was a case of they didn't weatherize their equipment because that costs extra and we have a largely privatized system. And then the stupidest part about it is that the producers of natural gas and um, uh, wind, solar, I mean, all of them, these producers weren't prioritized by that grid. (laughs) And it was because they had to fill out some paperwork that wasn't mandatory. Like like it it was, no, it's not because Yeehaw Texas set up their own grid. No, it's not because of of, uh, uh, AOC in a Grinch costume set up all of the the wind turbines to fail in, in her final Green New Deal act of treachery. No, it's because somebody didn't fill out paperwork. Like it is yeah. the most like like relevant answer to this problem that at some point somebody was sitting in their house and it was probably a nice house that probably still had power or they had gotten out to Mexico before Ted Cruz ruined it for everybody and and they were like oh crap did I not did I not send that in Joe did you send in that paperwork that was supposed to oh. Gosh, I guess next 100 year storm, somebody better remember to fill out that paperwork to weatherize the plants. So I, I was in Oklahoma during that and experiencing the same negative 14 degrees that, that everybody else in Texas had, uh, but was had power the entire time. Is that because Oklahoma has higher quality bureaucrats or less regulation? I mean, that's unclear. I mean, the whole paperwork thing was kind of fascinating because it was it, it, there were parts of the the system that didn't turn in their paperwork because they didn't know they had to because yeah. they weren't even in the line to be prioritized. So and it was the the gas producers. And so it was like instead of prioritizing the entire system cuz in order to get the the gas out of the ground, you have to have electricity to do that. So it was a matter of prioritizing where the limited electricity went. And so when they didn't have the paperwork saying essentially like this is the list of locations where we need to make sure has power in order to get the production up and running to make more power. Yeah. It was like they just had an incomplete list. 
And so there were parts of the system that weren't getting power and therefore couldn't create power. And there it was just like this domino effect that led to ERCOT having to say like, okay, if we don't shut down part of the grid, we're going to lose the whole damn thing. So it was it was just really fascinating. And what was Frustrating, but also super hopeful is that all of this was foreseen um, because in 2011, I was actually in Texas at the time. I remember there was a bunch of people driving down from Wisconsin because the Super Bowl was in Dallas and the Green Bay Packers were in it. And so these people that are totally used to driving in the snow, they get to Dallas where there's like an inch of ice and they're flying off the overpasses. It was a total mess. And Texas had the opportunity to learn a lot of these lessons because they had power issues back then too. And they were told you have to weatherize these systems because it's going to be cold here. And so they knew what they had to do and they didn't do it. But when watching these hearings, the solutions were so clear cut. So it's like, we can learn the lessons here. We have to require weatherization and we have to prioritize the entire electricity system when it comes to determining who gets priority for electricity. The only question now is, are we going to do it? And is this information out there enough that us peasants will demand it? And that's the big if. But the solutions were crystal clear. Yeah, uh, uh, very, very, very well done as always. And 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 also the 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 fun side dish of any congressional dish episode is just pointing out, you know, as people are talking, who they get their money from and and <laughs> identifying like, OK, well, he's a big oil guy. So literally, whenever he says anything, just know he's a big oil guy. And and it's 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 always I think it's it's healthy. It's very healthy for people to understand that, be it corporate greed in the way that we understand, you know, like, aha, like I'm going to take this sack of money and sell out my principles. Or it's like in the case of Tom Barrasso, or not Tom Barrasso, uh, Senator Barrasso, uh, uh, from that that you highlight in this episode, that's a industry in his state. And so he's looking out for an industry in his state. You should know who he's speaking for. You should mm-hmm. know what these lines of, of conversation are, because even with some of the the natural gas and, and uh, oil uh, people that they had brought on there, it's not like everything they said was total garbage. But also, you should just know they're industry protectors. They're there to say this product we're selling is still a legitimate thing. And uh, uh, just it very helps having that skeleton key to all of these arguments. I was amazed during the coverage of that by by two phenomena. First, 90% of the people reporting on it, very much unlike our very own Jen Briney didn't need to know what was happening in order to report on it. What they needed to know was who do I hate and what, what side am I going to try and use this as a political football on without knowing any facts about it. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, green technology did it. Meanwhile, it's like Texas because, uh, freedom, like, like it's just what, whatever thing you hated, Texas was that great exemplar of that. You didn't really need to know anything beyond you that. Had, yeah. The you had no, that, no, no reason to know anything. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing that I found interesting about that were a lot of otherwise very sympathetic, very warm, cuddly people had a lot of schadenfreude for Texas. Like uh, like like George Takei seemed to be like gleeful that people were in pain and suffering while in Texas. Like I like and I, I like making fun of Texas too, but I eventually I was like, all right, there's a lot of a lot of property damage and corpses. I'm gonna I'm gonna toast tiptoe back from this one. Yeah, people were mean and they were wrong. So that was the thing too, (laughs) like the people that chose to approach it that way were almost universally incorrect with their takes. And, you know, uh, uh, as much as I would love to believe that people will understand and educate themselves and they will listen to even these publicly available hearings or just listen to the hour and a half to two hours that Jen Briney spends summarizing these things. There are some issues for which that have gone on for not only longer than that, uh, uh, including the the you know modern flare up between Israel and Palestine, where I feel like everybody's still just sort of swimming in these surface level takes, no matter how much violence and death and 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 seriousness goes on around it. Nobody really wants to educate themselves. It's just sort of take your talking points and yell. 
That's okay. That's a fun one because that's the, the, the Israel Palestine one. I don't know that much about, I know enough to like, I could sit in a room full of people that understand the foreign policy there and understand like I, I'm cognizant of what's happening. I don't know enough to really have any emotional investment in it. So it's funny because I'll start talking to friends that like, I'll mention something that like, let's not get into it. And I'm like, I don't know how to get into it with you because I don't know where I fall I, on that. I, I don't, even don't know who the real sides are. I've watched the Lord of the Rings movies and I've watched the extended edition. I haven't read the books or the Silmarillion or any of the other assorted J.R.R. Tolkien writings in or around the universe. And that's my surface level understanding of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like I know mm-hmm. the last 50 or 60 years, basically. But even then, when I went to Israel and I talked to people, it it totally exploded my knowledge because I realized that most of the stuff that I've gotten have been from the same fairly hardened American focused American uh, uh, Americanized versions of this two sides of a coin that are really so many more than two sides. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And hearing you say that, it's like I've been sitting here having just read the NDAA. I know damn well how much money we are sending to Israel. We measure it in the billions every single year. And a lot of it is weapons. And it's like, should I do an episode about this? I don't want to, because anytime you even mention it, it is a wave of firings because I'm listener supported. It is people that get legit crazy. Um, You bring a world of hurt upon yourself as soon as you bring up the topic. And it's like, I know there's a need there. I know that my audience could use the here's the basics. But the world of, sh- can I swear on your, <laughs> your yeah, the world sure, go of ahead. Uh, crap that would yeah. come towards me if I did that, it disincentivizes all of us that do this kind of work to even mm. approach the topic for our own self-preservation. And I think, I know that I'm doing a disservice by, you know, avoiding the topic, but um, it's such a scary and contentious one. And you invite so much vitriol when you approach it, but at the same time, we're seeing obscene violence that our taxes are paying for. So um, we're not neutral parties here. And I think a lot of Americans look at that situation like it's very far away where it's really not. Yeah. When I was on the Hill, there were, there were three organizations that everybody was afraid of or mostly afraid of. Everybody's afraid of the AARP. None of the congressmen want to tackle AARP on anything. Uh, APAC is the other really big one, the the American Israeli Political Action Committee. Like that's that is a, a lobby that commands great respect and fear. And like I've I've been out drinking with guys from there that refer to themselves as hatchet men mm. because if if you step out of line, they're coming after you and they're going to try and ruin your candidacy. And it's very bipartisan, very cross partisan hatchet men. And then the third one's the NRA. That may not apply to all Democrats, but it certainly applies to all Republicans and pretty much all moderate Democrats. They don't want to mess with the NRA either. Uh, it's funny. I actually did an interview with uh, a, a gun lobby uh, a person, which shows you how much uh, we don't want to delve into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I would now like to transition to guns. Uh, but uh, the, the NRA is really in trouble. You know, they're they're uh, they're paying dues, paying membership has stagnated over the last eight years and, and they have about five million members it's slightly less than what they had eight years ago uh which you would think would have kind of exploded as money in po- especially small money in politics has really really uh taken a quantum leap forward but I think that there is a question in the next few years uh of of what the status of the NRA is because they're actually trying to go through this very tricky uh bankruptcy maneuver because they're they're getting their under investigation uh, in New York, which, where they were originally incorporated after the Civil War. Now they're trying to reincorporate in Texas after declaring bankruptcy. Their executive vice president is mired in scandal and has admitted that he has skimmed money. Like he, He's admitted that he's skimmed hundreds of thousands, which means that he's likely skimmed far more than that. Uh, uh, but it's it's fascinating to see. And then here was the biggest thing is when I first started talking about it on Twitter... And then I put this uh, uh, interview up this week. Young gun owners hate the NRA. They don't like the NRA for, for, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, uh, either they believe that it has uh, become too much of a cut, uh, a, a cut in carbon tool for the Republican Party. They liked the idea 
of it being just a Second Amendment, a a not red or blue Second Amendment defending organization. The uh, a Philando Castile uh, shooting was something that they felt that the NRA was too silent on because uh, that was a black gun owner that was that was shot, and and they felt the NRA should have stood up for his rights. Uh, but yeah, and then of course there's the corruption of Wayne Lapierre. But that that's that's one of those things where, like you said, Heaton. I, I, the only thing I could think of uh, when I was doing the episode was Planned Parenthood uh, of another organization. There's another good third rail. I, I'd say guns, Israel, and, there and we abortion go. are like the three third rails of the, of the political conversations we can. But have. that yeah. was the only other organization that I could think of that has such an outsized role in politics. Uh, you know, both in terms of being defended by one side and spat on the ground whenever somebody from the other side mentions it, but like. Uh, I, I I wonder about like whether or not some of that is changing. In terms uh, in terms of where, where the vitriol is located, well, or in terms whether of or not if, if 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 the NRA is going down, I mean, like, like what what happens like when and and part of me this is I guess the larger conversation is if a lot of this money goes to candidates now. And, and it's so easy to raise money directly for a campaign right off your phone. And maybe some of these larger, largely male and, and direct deposit organizations like the NRA are slow to kind of adapt to that modern world, whether or not we're just seeing a more agile money world in politics, whether or not uh, a big monolith organizations like that are just not going to be able to move as quickly as, as some of these insurgent campaigns are. Well, I think you're you're right in, in saying that that money in politics has become more agile through the technology. I think that is correct. However, if I were going to bet on candidates or bet on PACs or super PACs or anything involving a big issue, I would definitely bet on the issue. I think that's been one of the unintended consequences of both McCain-Feingold and Citizens United. Uh, well, actually, more, more McCain-Feingold was just um, the idea that Previously, um, campaign money was pretty much at the discretion of parties. McCain-Feingold came in and went, nope, from now on, like you, you're capped. You can only give X amount. And then we had about five years. And then somebody went, wait a minute, but we can pour however much money we want into issue type things, right? Yes. Great. We'll do that. And as a result, that tends to be where the money's going now. It tends to be these, these you know, these uh, Americans from more garden gnomes or Americans against mousetraps, whatever that yeah. thing is. Uh, and and they have way more money and way more discretion than the candidates, which I think is part of the reason that you've, you're seeing um, politics become much more vitriol, uh, vitriolic in that previously you could theoretically have a candidate that would put a stop to some of the worst practices going on. I don't know if they did it, but they could theoretically do it. Whereas now, like if you had a very nice guy or a nice gal, they don't have the ability to actually stop anybody from, from being awful and doing uh, 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 character attacks or anything like that because they control a fairly tiny amount of the actual money going into the campaign cycle. Most of the money is controlled by political action committees and by interest groups that they can't directly affect. Yeah, because yeah, they're legally barred from doing it, right? Which is right. which is yeah. why you, you periodically get those great YouTube clips that campaigns will upload. Ted Cruz got caught doing this once where there was just a a gigantic block of footage of Ted Cruz and his family that they had just uploaded to YouTube and the unlisted link just happened to get to the pack that they're not legally allowed to communicate with. And so like, mm -hmm. that's how this pack got the footage that was shot by the cruise campaign. But technically that's legal. Like that, that is, that is a thing that you're, you, you're allowed to upload to YouTube. If if the link happens to get to them, I guess that that's that's uh, that's the way or, to do or it. Or I think you, you you could go the other direction too. So like uh, I disagree with Bernie Sanders on a lot of economics, but I think that he's a very clean candidate. I think when he runs, he means what he says, and he does a good job of campaigning his own campaign and having it resonate with his message. So during the the 2020 election, he fired some people because they were they were making character attacks at fellow Democrats, um, and he has the ability to do that. But he can't do that if there's a pack that's like. America for stodgy socialists, yeah. something like that. He can't. He can't legally do that. Which means if they want to be nasty, they can. Or to go back in time, theoretically, uh, prior to McCain-Feingold, if most of the money had been operating out of the direct campaigns or out of the party apparatus, um, uh, McCain could have stopped. Uh, or uh, sorry, George W. Bush theoretically could have been like, "Don't swift boat John Kerry. That's a horrible thing to do." Now he probably would have anyway. Uh, but now there's no there's no legal mechanism because it was Americans for swift boat justice or whatever it was. So it's an, an autonomous group that, that's free to do that well let's uh talk about money of a different sort uh jen 
you have been, God bless your soul, diving through the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, uh, the American Rescue Plan, as President Biden named it. Uh, uh, is there anything in 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 this stage of your research that you found that has uh, that has piqued your interest? <laughs> so, to be honest with you, I finished reading it, and I am shocked at how little I have to say about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, yeah, because I mean, every time I read these bills, and the the CARES Act was one of the best examples of this, where it was supposed to be COVID relief, and there was all kinds of crap in there and corporate favors. And, and I live for that, you know, finding those secrets. Um, there were no crazy secrets. And I'll, I'll still have an episode about it because it's interesting to know where the money is going and the amounts and all that. But I feel like we had the entire Republican Party vote against this. And I'm going to double check. But what I saw on Twitter and in the world is they were saying there was so much in there that wasn't related to COVID and the resulting emergency. It's a lie. <laughs> it's just really? a lie. Yeah, it was all, I mean, it was definitely broad, but there was, in just about every section, it was related to COVID in some way or another, or related to the resulting unemployment and economic ripple effects. But there was no secret, you know, anything. It was just dingleberry free. There was no war authorized in the middle of it. Like There was just yeah. none of the usual corporate favors. Um, the only thing about it that I just found to be, you know, a little suspect as to like where the hell is our money going to go is the section that does allocate money to the states and the counties. It was very broad. It's basically just here's an enormous number of billions. You guys get to decide what you do with it from here on forward. And it has a lot of permissions. But at the same time, I look back on 2020 when we had a president that was just like, oh, the federal government's just not involved. So the states have to go and do it. And I know that here I've been living in Ventura County, um, in California, every COVID test I got, my vaccine, all of it was done by Ventura County. These were unexpected expenses that put our budget into an enormous hole. And so it does give them money that then the states and the counties have the freedom to allocate on their own. And it's kind of funny to me that these states rights Republicans are so against that. <laughs> They're so against the idea that the states and the counties get to decide. But I did sit here as a taxpayer going like, Wow. If you don't have a state or a county that's run by good people, I mean, they're getting a lot of money now with an enormous amount of freedom. And so I could see how that was branded as a bit of a bailout. But other than that, this bill is exactly what it was branded as. And that is the most shocking thing about it. A couple of really dumb, dumb clarification questions, just because I want to make sure that I'm following everything. There's, there's which act are we talking about now versus the CARES Act? The American Rescue Plan. So this was the 1.9 okay. trillion dollar um, COVID bill that was done by the Bi the Biden administration. It was basically their first. Well, I shouldn't say that it was done by Congress, um, mm -hmm. run by the Democrats. That was a priority of the Biden administration. They did it right away. They did it via reconciliation so they could get around the Republican right. resistance to this. And so, I mean, this is one of those rare bills where you really can put a party's stamp on it. Yeah. And I do have to say, I've seen so many bills written by Republicans because I started my show in 2012. Um, this is the first thing I've seen become law, especially with those numbers, 1.9 trillion. And it wasn't short. It wasn't easy to read that didn't have any secrets. Um, so, I mean, when I just look at everything I've been dealing with all these years, I just didn't expect to find something this massive with nothing attached to it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a pleasant surprise. So, so when, when you say secrets, what, what you have pointed out in, in other episodes of your show are like, uh, here's a, a gigantic pile of money for the NSA, or here's a, a, a regime change, like in Belarus, which you pointed out with one of the other bills, like this is exactly what, um, that this is exactly what it was, what it was, uh, you know, directed to do. Yes. So like the CARES Act, for instance, had a massive, massive tax cut for the rich included in it. So it was stuff like that. Like that's what I was kind of expecting to happen. So wait, so so can, can I go back? Because like, like the, 
I, I'm curious when you when you say it's broad money, but it's it's direct money. Can, can you elaborate on that? Because I was looking at some of the data on on the Rescue Act, and it was say like funding for education, which was a very very large amount. Like I think it was something like thirty to forty percent was going to be spent this year, but the remaining sixty percent, so billions and billions of dollars, would take place over like the next seven years. And I, I looked at that and was like, well, that just sounds like the the Democrats have gone. We just want to give giant education blocks, but we can use the, the the we can use COVID as a pretext for it. So it it might be a good thing, but but we're we're using COVID in order to just sort of push through things that we already wanted. Uh, was was kind of the the criticism that I got. Or or like with with the bailouts for states and counties, um, it was originally we thought it was going to be a massive massive budget shortfall, and it ended up being. I think one or two percent difference, but the but the actual bailout packages were much more expansive than that. So that it was just sort of giving these giant block grants to states and counties, uh, many of whom had had more restrictive measures that had uh, uh, hurt their businesses, whereas the, uh, the the red states had not, but were getting less money because of less unemployment and that kind of thing. I mean, I'd say that that's in a lot of cases that was accurate. I did notice that the dates did allow either the money to be spent until it's spent. So no expiration dates, or there were a lot of like, it's available till 2023, 2024, which is longer than this, this emergency period. So there was a lot of that. Um, yeah, they're just, okay. So I'm getting to the point of my notes with the state and local. So, so let me see. Okay. It was, so like, it was, it was about over, like five, $500 billion for, for state and local. Yeah. So just for an example of how broad it was. So here's a bunch of money that's available through the end of 2024. It's for states, territories, tribal go- governments. It says to mitigate the fiscal effects from COVID-19, and it can be spent specifically on assistance to households. That's quite broad. Um, small businesses, nonprofits, aid to impacted industries such as tourism, travel, and hospitality. Um, it can also provide premium pay for essential work, and it is for the provision of government services to the extent of the reduction of revenue due to COVID-19. So it's like they, they're allowed to take this money and fill in revenue holes, which they dis- they define, and then also they're allowed to use this for investments in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. Um, what it's not allowed to be used for are reductions in revenue caused by tax cuts or deposits into pension funds. So basically it was like, you have to use the money. You can't just like provide tax cuts, cuts paid for with this, but as for what they're allowed to use it for quite broad. And so, um, I suppose that that's kind of what I'm talking about though, like water sewage and, and broadband internet access. I, I guess I could see the broadband internet access yeah. maybe for COVID, given that everybody was on Zoom. But like water and sewage, that, that might be a good thing to do. But what does it have to do with, with COVID relief? Yeah. And that's why I said like this was the one provision that I was in here and just being like, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's real broad. Uh, but the rest of it, it just I mean, education, like you brought up the education provisions. They were okay to me just because I'm living across the street from a middle school here and I've just watched all the things that they've had to do to get the schools back up and running. I mean, the the PPE that they're required to have and all of the different, you know, classroom layouts that they're working with. And so it's like, I do think it is going to be, and they're also considering doing testing when they bring the kids back, there's going to need money for that. And I think that also explains why they would have dates that are beyond 2021 because the, we have the 2021, 2022 school year coming up and we don't really know how long this is going to be required. So it's like giving money to the schools, and the way that they did it, I didn't see any super red flags. Keeping in mind also that like I read the bill and I haven't digested it yet for my episode. Sure. So I'm going to be yeah. reading so, it much me... more closely. But the state and local was the one part that really sent up my, you know, fiscal conservative red flags just going like yeah. this is going to be largely up to the discretion of the people locally that get it. And it's an enormous amount of money. So, so Jen knows this better than I do. I, I have not read the bill, so I, I, I will, Jen. I defer to you on all of this. Um, I, I do see a, a few. I see most of this as being COVID relief, but I see quite a lot of stuff getting shoehorned in it. So, like with with education, I, I think they they ended up giving out like 130 billion dollars or so. Um, but like about 500 million of that was for arts, humanities, and museums, 
which again, that might be a good thing to do, but but that doesn't strike me as COVID. That strikes me as great. We get education money. We're Democrats. We want to do education grants. Um, and there were some things that got slipped in there. Like there was a subway. Like there's money for a subway in San Jose. No, there's that that wound up that wound getting stripped out. That was that was in Did the initial. Yeah, okay. that was in the initial House bill, and then it got clowned so hard that, that for the Bart expansion that it uh that it that it got uh it got stripped out. In the House. Then I am clearly using older data and will drift into the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like okay. So I'm going. I'm in my education Department of Education part of my outline. And the money can be used through September 30th, 2023. So we're talking about the next. Okay, so it is a shorter. It is a shorter period. It's not like a decade or anything like no, that. No, like it's, it's yeah. It's a reasonable amount of time. We're looking at two school years worth, which it makes sense to me. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, wait, wait, wait. A money so wait, that's not used all, has to I be can... returned to the Secretary of Education. It goes grants to the states. They don't. They don't need to worry about that. Yeah, it's going to be used. Uh, I, I. This is just how, how managers in both the private and public sector work. If you go, their money's going to disappear unless you spend it. They're going to spend it. Yeah. Um. um I, here, here's here's a thought experiment. Um. If so so back of the envelope math. Uh. If if we were just to divvy all, it's one point nine. Uh, trillion, right? If we if we were to, to divvy that up between all Americans, it'd be about five thousand uh, um, dollars. Would would you all have just given everybody a, bl- a check for five thousand, or, or gone with the with the bill as is? Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff can't be handled on an individual level. Like, how do you send kids back to school if you need to test all the teachers and require the communities to make that happen? Like, there's you talk about personal That's responsibility. We couldn't get people to put cloth over their face so how are we expecting them to take the initiative to use that 5,000 to buy COVID tests every day it's just not at a certain point we do have to have societal level yeah I mean I, well, I, 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 I right also think that, that I, we I just I, need, I'd rather we, give need, we need some money level. to people than industries but but there there are certain government subsidies there like vaccines are I think a very good example of where we're yeah like having having some sort of public element makes sense uh, you know and that's and that's the thing uh, about a, a lot of money going to anything is that you have to take into effect what people want that money to do. And as far as COVID goes, we can talk all about the the education element, but there's also a brewing fight with teachers unions and when, like whether or not the, the money should come with the requirement that schools are open. Uh, uh, there's, there's a big, and, and there's, there's the idea of just like, if you need money really quick, it's going to be inefficient. So yeah, like uh, with, with the cares act and, and with the rescue act, uh, if you really want to go through it on a fine tooth comb, you're going to, it's going to take longer and people suffering aren't going to get it. So there's a sort of trade off between, yeah, we know that there's going to be a little bit of graph in here, but uh, we want to get it out really fast. So what is what is it? Like good, fast and cheap pick two. <laughs> I feel like like we've, we've learned a lot of those lessons uh, with the same combination of two words in the last year. Well, uh, that was some of my frustration with reading this bill is I feel like had this been the first one, had this been the CARES Act? We would have been in a lot better shape because there was money in here for rental assistance and for unemployment and a, a sufficient amount that's actually going towards the end of the emergency or close to well, it. You didn't think $1,000 was fine for a year? <laughs> what, what kind of a plutocrat are you that you need more than $1,000 for a year? Exactly. La so it's like da. having read the CARES Act in the beginning and being so furious about how much of it was directed towards big companies and then reading this mm. where I'm like, this is a good bill. Like it just showed me... The difference, I mean, I I hate to be partisan and pick a side, but I read the one that was written by Mitch McConnell and hmm. Stephen Mnuchin, and then I read this one, and like, this one is better. And I wish that we had this the whole time, because I think, you know, eventually people did get their unemployment payments, the people that really couldn't work. But the amount of stress that we put people through in this last year by having it expire so many times and leaving so many people in the lurch over and over again, like how much unnecessary suffering did Congress cause by doing it that way? And, you know, it is what it is. We had to change Congress in order to change the legislation. Um, But I found that to be a bit of a tragedy that the good bill came last. Reminder that you can get the brand new formatted Monday edition of the PX3 Extra if you are a $3 club member. Do not be led around by the nose by the the two parties 
Guys, if you, if you listened to the Monday PX3 Extra, where I told you exactly what was going to happen with Liz Chain, exactly how everybody was going to spin it, it happened exactly as I have foreseen. But you would know what this is really about if you listened to the PX3 Extra. You would know about uh, a Donald Trump calling a horse a junkie, <laughs> which isn't exactly pressing news, but uh, it is it is uh, a fun time. Anyway, there you go. Make sure you get the first podcast that you need to listen to in your political week. I watch all the Sunday shows, or at least enough clips of the Sunday shows, to get a sense of of where the narratives are being spun up. I explain what they're trying to do. I tell you how the week is going to play out, barring something new. It's all available to you at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, that's where you get it. Again, that's TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Uh, Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because this is the last thing that I wanted to bring up with you guys. And that is, and this will be up your alley, Heaton, a very philosophical question that is meeting some real world proof, or at least according to some. We had a very bad jobs report compared to expectations for April. We expected to add a million jobs. We wound up adding 250,000 jobs. The unemployment rate, which had uh, very briefly last year cosplayed as the Great Depression, had successfully kind of rebounded from there, actually receded for the first time, went went ticked up very slightly, I believe, from 6.1 to 6.2%. Anecdotally, out here in Austin, Texas, I'm seeing signs outside of fast food restaurants and restaurants in general that I've never seen before in my life, including signing bonuses for minimum wage jobs because these places are now seeing more foot traffic and now need more bodies and apparently are desperate enough that they want to offer signing bonuses to get people in the door. So as we talk about unemployment, as we talk about stimmy checks, as we talk about a sufficient amount that's kind of there... There is the argument on the right and including the Chamber of Commerce uh, that is saying, talk about feared organizations that people dare not tread uh, against, that this safety net is now creating a labor shortage in the market. Uh, I don't think that either of us are necessarily economically minded to the level that we can have any kind of for sure answer. No, do I think anybody necessarily could see the 360 of this, but I did want to toss it out because we, uh, I knew we were going to talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the money that's, that's going out for folks who have dealt with COVID. Yeah. So, well, so two things, um, the first thing, which is a little bit broader of interest to me, and I hope of interest to your listeners, uh, is just whenever these unemployment rates come out, um, or, or I should say, whenever whenever a rate comes out about economic growth, whoever the president is immediately assumes uh, all credit if it's good, yes, or blames their predecessor if it's bad, and that's something that confused me for a long time because I was like, well, how much how much of of jobs reports and economic uh, and economic growth can we attribute to the president versus just the economy as a whole? And as best I can glean uh, through doing reading, stock market probably more to do with the president that's in there right now because the stock market's about spirit animals and about spooking people and inspiring hope and all that kind of thing. It's it's about it's about, you know, basically how do we think we're going to do here in a bit. So that if the stock market's doing well or poorly, that's probably more attributable to the president in office at that moment. Uh, the the actual economic growth and to some extent, the unemployment rate, probably more long tail effect. Uh, and we're in a very odd situation in this one where we're not looking at just sort of a basic economic mechanism of uh, how much government spending was there versus investment in the economy. We're, we're dealing with this weird black swan event that's happening. In terms of the 
unemployment benefits creating a labor shortage. I'm afraid I, I must debase myself in front of your listeners. I do not have enough understanding of that topic to be able to weigh in on it one way or the other. Uh, but the, the mechanisms that are being debated are if you make the if you make the unemployment too good or too robust, then people, if basically if you price it above whatever the labor market would otherwise be, people will logically not go back to it. So theoretically, if you're making $700 a week uh, in job A, but you're getting $800 a week from unemployment benefits, why would you go back to working when you don't have to work at all? That's basically the theory going on. How it shakes out in our current economy, I don't actually know. I don't, I don't, I haven't done enough research on that to be able to weigh in on it. It does make me deeply uncomfortable, Justin, though. I'll say this, <laughs> because uh, I I like the idea of social safety nets. I, in particular, like the idea of UBI. I am a proponent of UBI, and I think you can trust most people to not be leeches and layabouts. I think most people want to be productive. At the same time, I have to acknowledge that when you look at um, unemployment in, say, some of our European friend countries, uh, when, when they go, hey, you can only do unemployment, like say say like in, in, I think it was Sweden a few years ago, unemployment was like a year and a half or something like that. And they cut it down to eight months. And they found that within about eight months, people started finding jobs. Whereas previously, if they kept unemployment at a very robust level for a year and a half, it took people much, much longer to find jobs. So there does seem to be a relationship between how robust the unemployment package is and how excited people are to go find another job. So I have two things about that. I was reading the Wall Street Journal this morning and they were talking about how much these extra $300 a week payments are making a difference in that dynamic of like if you pay people too much on unemployment, they won't want to go back to work. Well, on average, those $300 payments are bringing people up to an average of what would be if they were working $15 an hour. So the idea, which is not that much money. I mean, we're talking in the $20,000 a year range at that level. So the idea that that's like too much money and we have to tear it back, I just think speaks more to the fact that these companies that want the peasants to come back to work are paying too little. Um, I think that's an indictment on them as opposed to how generous our benefits are because they're not that generous. So that's that's one thing. The other one has escaped me. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, as somebody who, who came from a family of, of, of people who worked in and ran restaurants, I worked in restaurants for, for most of my, my, my young adult life and through my twenties, I will be the first to say it can suck. Like it's it like, and, and it would suck worse if you're dealing in a world with COVID where not only do you have to worry about the disease, but you have to worry about every culture element of the disease and you have to argue with somebody that maybe doesn't want to wear a mask where they should wear a mask. That is a tremendous hassle that if I were not very motivated for money, that maybe I would stay away from. Now, where does that fit into the matrix of, uh, you know, if I'm making the equivalent of $15 an hour on uh, unemployment, I can float some credit card debt and pretty much live my life and not deal with screaming welcome to Moe's whenever some Jay Brown who doesn't, you know, wants to cough in my face for a viral video to make a point like yeah, I'm going to sit on my ass. I'm I'm going to I'm going to like I'm going to head to the Winchester and wait for all this to blow over. Like I I don't know where we get into the social engineering of how to fix it, but it does make sense to me in in these jobs that say they have a labor shortage because I could imagine they were like fairly unpleasant but like decently paying when I was doing it when there wasn't a pandemic and a culture war where everybody wanted to yell at each other. Yeah. And it's not just those crappy, you know, restaurant type jobs. They also want to yank back the benefits for independent contractors, people like, you know, Uber drivers that kind of make their own money. And, and this is anecdotal for sure. But I was just we had a family tragedy. So I just got back from Seattle and my Uber driver told me that this was his second ride back. And so I kind of talked to him about it. I was like, oh, like, what did you do in between? He's like, I got unemployment benefits, but I got real bored. And I was like, well, what's bringing you back now? He's like, oh, my vaccine kicked in yesterday. 
Yeah. So we're also not at the place where people are, are vaccinated enough to feel physically safe to go back there. So the whole idea that we're shocked by these job numbers, like this is a weird time. We're like half vaxxed. And I just feel like to read more into it, to like make judgments on our unemployment system and how generous it is and all that until we're at the point where everyone is at their level of safety I just feel like there's too many factors to judge what's happening right now any bigger than we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're still in the the phase of, you know, it's not over yet. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only question is like, all right, so why did it stall out here? If, if it had been, because like people were looking for it to make not gigantic gains, but just kind of continue the gains that had, that, that, that it had been uh, making prior like it had been sort of and chugging it, it along. probably will when, when the economy fully reopens the economy is probably going to be roaring for a while uh to, to me the bigger concern here um again i i don't know the economics on this i have not done a deep dive i haven't even read a wall street journal or journal article so i'm, I'm well <laughs> out, out with my ability to comment on this um the bigger issue for me is i, I think that we we could be looking over the near horizon at a period where the economy does recover but we also could be having inflation as a uh, as a result of all the money that's been pumped into the economy that's kind of the thing i'm keeping my eye on because we're probably going to have a rip-roaring economy here in two or three months because all of a sudden everybody's going to feel comfortable going everywhere and so everyone's going to have all this money if the, if uh, for, for most Americans that didn't lose the job have been actually saving in record numbers they're going to have money to spend on going to movies and going on vacation travel's going to really open up so all of that's going to happen there's going to be a great uh, a, a great next quarter of the economy and the stock market's going to surge at the same time we've also put a bunch of money into the uh, uh, currency into, into the, the monetary supply so we are going to kind of run the risk of inflation like that's and, and if you look at the aggregate numbers like the Fed is like, don't worry, we're keeping it at one or one or two percent inflation. Very, very low. But then I'm looking at the aggregate numbers and I'm like, well, like corn's up 50 percent. Soybeans are up 28 percent. Like all of the aggregate stuff is is rising in price. So I, I think you could also see that happening where we have a really high growth economy, but also an inflationary economy in the near future. But I think the idea that the high growth economy is right around the corner, I have some questions about that just based on my experience in the last week with my own social circle like I got on a plane I'm one of the crazy people that's like I'm vaccinated bye you know like but not everyone's behaving that way like I just had a discussion with a whole bunch of vaccinated women on our our group chat and I'm the only one who's eaten indoors at a restaurant and that would even consider it and yeah. I had a long conversation with my sister today who was like she's not going anywhere this summer you know, like she's at the point where she is considering allowing her children to play outdoors with masks with other people. I mean, there are people that are far more afraid of this virus than I am. And I think there's a lot of them. And we just don't know about them because they're still hiding in their homes. So mm. I think this summer, maybe what we just saw is the people that really wanted to get out, got their vaccines and are out. Boom, we had a push. The people that are still hiding, they're probably going to keep hiding this summer. And I'm feeling like there might be an over exuberance for what uh, is about to happen on the timeline scale. I think it might be a little bit later. I feel like travel's not going to be, you know, back to full force and we'll have the roaring 20s. I don't think that's really starting until next year because I am witnessing a lot of fear in my personal life. And I just don't think that's going to go away that quickly for those people. That makes me feel a lot better about moving to a low cost of living place in the middle of America. Because <laughs> it means that I'm not going to be missing out on that much if that's the case. Uh, and, and, and Jen, that's entirely possible. I mean, I, I'm, I, I do this all the time where I'm like, I assume everybody is equally extroverted and logical as me. <laughs> Therefore, everybody will do the exact same thing I do, which is wait two weeks until the vaccine is the second vaccine is kicked in and then immediately quit caring. And that's not how everybody's I mean, going to Look, even here in, in Austin, which, look, a lot of times it's Austin, but every once in a while you're reminded it's Texas. Uh, uh, we're doing this kind of bizarre dance of like, I'm in the car with my friends. We're not wearing masks indoors. And then we all ceremonially don our masks and we walk inside the restaurant, the the the, the, the 10 feet and then we ceremonially take off our masks as if to honor the time that we wore masks 
all the time and then we it, sit it's like tipping a hat that's it's, it it's is the, it's it, the like, century version of tipping your cowboy hat. yeah it, it's like this 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 like courtly manner that, that we have now like woven into our, our our world that i think is now beyond where the science says i'm glad that there's at least a press backlash to the idea that like there is reason to be wearing masks outside to the level that that you know experts are saying that that they should uh uh because there really isn't like like the outdoor transmission is so 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 small, but like right. uh, I I agree with you, Jen. I I don't think that this is just gonna be we're gonna ring a bell in the town square and everybody's gonna start making out like like this is this is a a which is what I was rooting for for a year. <laughs> uh, no, it's a good it's a good point too. Plus, I think like um. I, I, I want to be careful my words here. I think that there is a general human tendency, because I don't think that this is a, a progressive or conservative thing, but there's a general human tendency to, while fearful, uh, default on either compliance or superstition. Uh, and so, uh, and I, by the way, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have feared COVID. Obviously, a lot of people are dead. However, if you've had two vaccines and it's been two weeks, I think you're fine. You're, you're, you know, it's like a 99% effectivity rate. I don't believe anybody's died that's had both vaccines from COVID. So like, you do not need to fear if you've had that. Uh, I think, um, I yeah, think there I, was technically before I get the emails. Yes. I think okay. there, there have been people who have gotten sick and I think that there's somebody. Let, 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 let me rephrase this. Your life, if you, after you get those two vaccines, I don't think is going to be any safer a year from now than it is right yes. now. Just based, based off of like, like you're, that, that is the new normal. Once you've got two weeks out of that new vaccine, you're, you're in the new normal, right? So whatever you're planning doing the rest of your life you should i think feel comfortable doing right now uh once you've done that however uh i have a lot of friends that are kind of the same boat as me that that are just like i don't know i just don't i don't i don't i, I just feel icky doing it uh and, and it's it's a very feeling-based thing it's a very um i, I am worried so i am going to I'm, I'm going to constrict or flagellate uh in order to deal with this stress and this fear uh and uh and you're right that's probably very widespread there's I, there, there was an article in the Atlantic about how uh, there there are a lot of people that are just refusing to end lockdown because they're they're kind of they're kind of stuck in that mindset even if there's no medical reason for them to cease doing so. And that yeah. explains unemployment numbers to me. It really does. They don't want to go back to work, and it might not be because they're making so much unemployment. It might just be or, like or they're patron, hiding. Or, or patron the places that employ the other people. It might just be that they don't want to go to the restaurant uh, and, and and pay the pay the money to get the food. But and I by guess, the way, like I said, I just flew from LAX to Seattle and back. You go in the airport and everything that's retail based, like Mac Cosmetics and the massage stuff, like all of those, those are still closed. Yeah. So this idea that we're even open, like how are we going to have these amazing unemployment numbers while places like that are still literally closed? I think I think yeah the, the the unemployment numbers specifically were about the break in momentum is that they had been getting better getting better getting better we expected them to continue getting better at that same rate and then it stalled so it's like whether or not we are are we're, we're dragging against this like silt at the bottom of the uh, uh river that we didn't expect or it is some socially engineered reason for everybody to stay home because they're getting that sweet $300 when they could be getting that sweet 450 for flipping <laughs> burgers. Like, uh, uh, that's, that's a different, uh, uh, story. We're, we're going to find out. And, and ultimately it's like from an electoral and political capital perspective, the only thing that those jobs numbers did was make the next job numbers really important for Biden. It, it's not that those were the end of days, it's that now, like Heaton said, the economy tends to be a like persistent to put in D and D or role playing terms, a persistent plus two or a persistent minus two on your presidency. Like if it's good, you just get a persistent plus two because the economy's good, people are in a good mood, blah blah blah. If it's bad, you're just gonna catch uh, hell for it one way or another. But uh, it's uh man uh, i'll tell you what i i, I know for me the, over the last week my big thing has been like like when do i get to do a live show again like when do i get to do a meetup again because i feel like i'm ready like I'm, I'm i would kill for that energy I've, I've wanted that energy for a year i could have had live shows through the presidential election that i couldn't that was robbed because of COVID, and it's like now I really, really, really want to do it, but it's not my decision. It is a decision 
between me and yeah. the audience, and the audience needs to, just, I, needs to decide. I, I haven't been to a key party in like <laughs> probably 15 months now. And it's like, when are we going to do this again? Come on, everybody's vaxxed at our Slack channel. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up for the political triad. Jen, where can people find you? Uh, congressionaldish.com is where you can find all my show notes and sources. Don't trust me, trust them. And you can listen to the podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, and, and again, go go get that that Texas episode. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Keaton, uh, you did a great episode this month uh, with a British writer where you guys were talking about the differences between the British and American concept of freedom, which if I were to mm-hmm. write as a parody of a Andrew Keaton episode, <laughs> it would be that. And it was as great as I could have ever hoped to to imagine a, a, a Heaton episode, but uh, do you have anything cool coming up? Yeah, uh, so it was, so the Robert Jackman episode, he, he's a, a British writer that, that I brought on. Uh, he writes for uh, a, a bunch of different publications, Spike, Spectator, uh, Telegraph, so he's kind of across the board, but he, he came over to the United States um, pre-pandemic and basically just flung himself at what he viewed as like the craziest pockets of, of freedom in America, so he'd go like hang out with militias. He'd, he'd do things like that. He really wanted to get into our heads, and so we were talking about it, and I was kind of uh, you know, pulling up good American thinkers like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and uh, all of these. I'm joking, they're British. Uh, and and we, we were comparing and contrasting. That was a lot of fun. The, the one that just dropped um, uh, Wednesday of this week uh, that I'd point people to, if you're interested in, in social safety nets and you're interested in benefits and things like that, and you really want to hear from a very, very pro-strong public social safety net perspective, uh, I brought on Anna Partanan, who's a Finnish journalist. She wrote a book called The Nordic Theory of Everything. And I, I wanted to speak to somebody that was really plugged into that Nordic Scandinavian model of very strong social safety nets with a market economy, uh, but but much stronger social safety nets than we have in the United States. And I, I was interested to talk to her about, does it work? Could it scale up in the United States? Do you like it? She does. Um, how does it affect our relationships? All those kind of things. So if, if you're interested in social safety nets or alternately you just want to learn about Scandinavia and Nordic countries, check out the Political Orphanage. And of course, you guys are listening to this podcast, so you know what the hell I'm up to. But you can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. For Andrew Heaton and Jen Briney, I'm Justin Robert Young, and this is The Political Trifecta. See you later. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This episode was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to go and uh, uh, thank Jen Briney for taking time out of her day for doing this show, just go to px3guest.com. If you want to thank Andrew Heaton, he's been on a bunch, so you probably know his Twitter. But head on over to Mighty Heaton on Twitter and let him know that he did a good job. If you want to email me, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is bx 3 tweets Twitch live. You can see our new set. You can find that at px3live.com. Our newsletter is px3newsletter. Uh, share this podcast by sending friends to px3podcast.com and you can get your COVID shots, equals, body shots, T-shirts, and tank tops, and stickers, and masks, as well as all other show merch at politicsmerch.com. Should you be interested in making a one-time donation to the show, you can do so at paypal.me slash payjury. You can hit up my Venmo, justin-young-20. Let's see, who's our, who's our Venmo buccaneer? of the day. The people that only send me $1. They send me $1 on Venmo. And it just tickles me. How about Tyler? Tyler sent me 10 What a nice boy. That is, uh, again, the Venmo Justin-Young-20. Our cash app is PX3Cash. And of course, you can send checks or unmarked bills or physical goods to P.O. Box. 153184 Austin, Texas. Again, that is P.O. Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. But 
Of course, you can always get bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. The Monday one comes out at midnight on Monday morning. Make it the first podcast that you listen to. Thursday gets you the latest breaking news for the week. And it's everything that we might uh, might miss on our free podcasting schedule. But only at the $10 level do you get those plus your name read on the show. I like to call them the Titanic. $10 tier. Names like Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Mac, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neely the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah Jimmy Montana, Appraisers are awesome. Snuffies off route 44. Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, Charles, Archie, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. If you would like, to have your name added to that list, you head on over to Take Politics Seriously. You sign up at the $10 level. And that is it for the week. As we speak, I'm hanging out with my mom and my brother. They made their way to Austin and I'm having a good time with them. I hope you guys have a good weekend. Till next week. Is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares to discuss. Oh, Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.